Welcome from me, John Strickland, to Our Future Skies in partnership with AIG. In this podcast series, I'm talking with leaders from different parts of the airline industry, exploring their views on what kind of shape it might be in and how it might look over the next 10 to 20 years. The industry isn't by any means fully over the COVID pandemic, although we hopefully have seen the worst behind us now, but there are nevertheless many other challenges to be grappled with, whether it's challenging economic conditions, mounting political tension and conflict risk in many parts of the world, uncertainty about the future of globalization, and of course, the growing urgency on the subject of climate change, there is plenty to occupy the minds of industry executives as they survey the future. In this episode, we'll hear from British Airways, an airline with more than 100 years of heritage and part of one of Europe's leading airline groups, IAG, International Airlines Group. Today, British Airways competes for both price-sensitive customers and at the premium end of the market too. It seems everyone has a view on what it should and shouldn't be doing. Its CEO, Sean Doyle, has over 25 years industry experience at British Airways, holding a number of senior positions, and was recently CEO at Aer Lingus before he took the same role at British Airways in 2020. So, welcome, Sean. Thanks, John. Sean, as I mentioned, we're talking with British Airways about an airline with a long heritage, but the world you operate in is constantly changing. And as you know, I was at British Airways myself for over 30 years ago, and what we saw then was a very different competitive world than the one we see today. We didn't have any low-cost carriers. We had pretty weak transatlantic competition, and Gulf carriers like Emirates were just in their infancy. So it's a really different environment today. What's your take on where you are today, Sean? Yeah, well, I think... Um... You know, the airline industry is very dynamic and very heavily competed. And of course, there's a lot of airlines out there, you know, fighting for passengers. I think there's 714 airlines globally. So it probably is still one of the few industries where some of the big players will have no more than five or six percent share. So it's very fragmented. And, you know, that's, you know, not dissimilar to what you would remember in a way. Um, you know, consolidation has happened, but maybe not to the extent that people might have anticipated but I think what that means as well is, of course, there's always new competitors coming along to keep you on your feet. And as you say, you know, the U.S. competitors now are really invested a lot in product standard and network and fleet over the last 10 years. And of course, we've had, you know, the Gulf carriers emerge over the last 20 years and build their transit hubs in great geographic locations flying to the east. Um, and of course, since you, you were in British Airways, of course, we've had people like EasyJet and Ryanair scale their business models as well and compete for the short-haul point-to-point customers in a way that they wouldn't have done historically. I think all of that you've got to respond to, and it forces you to be efficient and to be competitive and to be innovative. And I think there's one thing that we do have in British Airways is, you know, we do have those competitive and innovative genes in our DNA, but it certainly keeps us on our toes and, you know, mandates us to be constantly striving to create a better business. Let's look at some of the wider issues for the industry and for BA specifically, and we're definitely going to come back to some of the points you've mentioned there. I, I mentioned we're coming out of COVID, or we hope it's uh, behind us now, and a number of airlines have talked about how they planned for risk, and I'm not sure if it was someone in your parent company, IAG, or another airline, airline who told me that when they planned for risk in the past, the thinking was the 9-11 terror attacks were the reference point. There couldn't be anything worse than that. I mean, of course, we had COVID. Nobody expected to see the revenue taps stopped and airlines grounded completely for a two-year-plus period. Do you think there's going to be a change in approach to planning for any major future risk event, Sean? I think there has to be. You know, 
we're dealing with the biggest crisis aviation faced since coming out of World War II. We were more or less grounded for the bones of 24 months, or certainly not getting above you know 25 or 30 percent capacity. And I don't think any airline would have had a BCP in their drawer, which would have anticipated either the depth or the length of the COVID pandemic. So it has reset, you know, the basis on which you will drive contingency plans in the future. It also gives us an opportunity to reflect on the things that um, went badly in COVID. And I do think that if we look back about the policies that governments deployed to shut up travel and, you know, the policies other governments deployed to keep travel open, the outcomes in terms of the pandemic were no different. And if you sit back, you know, three years later and look at, you know, all of the COVID stats and the correlation between travel policy, there is no consistent theme that countries who had a stricter policy did better than countries who didn't. So I think we got to keep on reminding policymakers and legislators not to fall back into the, the traps they did. It might feel comfortable to shut the borders. It doesn't have any real impact on the, the evolution of the pandemic. Uh, yet what it did mean is that British carriers in particular were faced with a mountain to climb coming out of COVID that a lot of our competitors didn't, didn't have to grapple with. And that led to one of the most challenging years I can remember for British Airways over the course of 2022. And uh, a lot of that was driven by the policies that kept us in hibernation more or less all through 2021. Oh, certainly. Let's hope that we do see some uh, learning, as you said, on the, uh, the political paymaster side of things for future uh, events uh, of this kind, which we hope we won't see for uh, a long, long time. In terms of other learnings, uh, what I found it fascinating, you know, during COVID, as airlines began to fly again, and you and I, I know, share quite a similar background in some of our career in terms of planning airline networks and deciding where to fly. Uh, I saw that airlines really had to take a very different approach, you know, in many ways, shoot from a hip. Uh, often airlines would use uh, data from the past to work out what we should do in the future, but there was no meaningful data. And we saw much much more short-term decision-making and more dynamic changes. I think British Airways yourselves came onto routes you'd never been on before or uh, not been involved with for some years. Do you think there's something in that approach that will be embodied in future airline uh, planning of timetables? Because the good old days, you could say airlines change their timetables twice a year, but that's I think that's long dead, isn't it? Yeah, I was going to say that, actually. You know, the days of winter-summer timetables, mm -hmm. they're being static, are gone. I don't know how many times we've already changed our schedule, even at 23, but in 22, we were changing it every week. You know, there were some times when we were operating, you know, over 120 cargo only flights over the course of the pandemic. And that was very exciting because we were keeping the flow of goods into the country and out of the country and enabling trade to carry on while the pandemic was raging. But at the same time, you know, we were flying to very interesting places that we'd never flown to before. And, um, I think our flight crew community were great in being very agile in, in kind of operating, um, you know, for what was many months, more or less a cargo only airline. I think, you know, the other thing which we'll all have to reflect on as well is, you know, aviation as an ecosystem has a lot of highly skilled people in it. It's got a lot of, you know, processes that need to synchronize very tightly together, which are very time perishable. And when that becomes dislocated, the rebuild is a lot more challenging than people realize. And, uh, you know, the issues that aviation and British Airways encountered last year are well documented, but it's not just us and it's not just the UK. You would have seen this in the US, you would have seen it in Amsterdam and Frankfurt. And, uh, you know, going from operating 20% capacity to trying to get up to 80 or 90 in the space of two or three months is incredibly difficult. And again, 
I think policymakers need to understand that if they think you can turn aviation on with the switch of a light, uh, think again. Absolutely. And in terms of that dynamism, uh, you described the complexity by which all the parts work together, not just across the, uh, the ecosystem, but even within within an airline, those kind of skills that you have, uh, pilots being perhaps a particularly uh, good example. Uh, the desire to, to change and flex, you know, ideally, according to market forces, uh, do you see ways that that will be improved upon and be able to move more quickly, given those kind of constraints? Well, I think you touch on a very good point. You know, we've come out of the pandemic and we said we don't want the business to be what it was. We want to transform the business for a couple of reasons. You know, there's plenty of ways we can improve the business. And, you know, we were a very successful business before the pandemic, but there were a lot of things that needed to be fixed. And over the course of the pandemic, you know, we have identified ways we can improve the business, whether it's being more agile with schedules, whether it's the investment we're making in things like IT systems, whether it's kind of things we can do to use technology to make the customer experience better and gather more insight, or whether it's, um, you know, fundamentally um, being a lot more dynamic and agile in, in exploiting new opportunities. That's important for a few reasons. One, I think it's better for the customer if we're on our feet and more agile and transforming the business. I think it's also exciting for our colleagues, you know, to be part of making the business better because there's a huge amount of pride in the brand and you know the kind of place the British Airways holds in the hearts of consumers. And I think if we can galvanize our people around creating a new version of that, uh, future-proofing the airline, it's quite powerful. But also, I think it's just about the fact that the future is going to be different from the past. And that demand may not be you know, what it was in the past. We see very strong leisure. We see people combining business and leisure more, more than they did in the past. And we see changes in travel patterns. And if we're to prosper, we know we need to be very agile in being able to adapt to that. For instance, this summer, we'll fly more leisure than we did historically. Uh, we'll have less business markets open in short haul because, you know, they're the segments that are performing very strongly. And, um, you know, this notion that we simply revert back to the way things were in the past. I think, you know, everybody's got to dispel that because, you know, a shock to the system means that the future is always different. And this has been a big shock. Well, you touched on one of the points I had on my my list for you anyway, Sean, about customers. And I think it's fascinating to see this change, isn't it, in what is happening. I, I remember in the past, in the time I joined British Airways, you'd have certain routes, a long haul, where you'd have upwards of 100 people in business class cabins paying rat rate fares. You know, the, the dollar signs were, were were ticking over nicely, and it was a, a license in some respects to, to print money. But we're seeing that change in philosophy. And this whole idea of, as you said, leisure, mixing business and leisure, people traveling in premium cabins uh, and for what for me seem phenomenal numbers do you think that's that's a blip or do you think that we may we, none of us can tell but do you think it might prolong for the future of its change in behavioral patterns well i think it's interesting we saw that change as far back as 2010 uh, because after the global financial crisis ba you know pivoted very successfully into premium leisure and we did a number of things to to accelerate i think the capture of share in that market one was we really built up our BA holidays business, and that's phenomenally successful. And, uh, you know, it's a, a seven-figure turnover business, and it really gives us um, a much broader offering to give to consumers in the form of a ground product associated with the air product. And we find that the brand or loyalty program and the holidays business, you know, give us some great unique um, offerings in the UK market that others can't replicate. I think the second is, you know, 
the places we fly to, like the Caribbean has been a, a massive success story for British Airways. Uh, we're in a lot more markets and we have a very strong leadership position into the Caribbean. You know, Mauritius has been very successful. And this summer we launched places like Guyana and Aruba to kind of, again, expand that winter sun and that year-round leisure offering. Is it sort of a blip? I think this has been a trend over a decade. And I think it's a consistent trend that you're seeing across the industry as well. If you talk to carriers in Asia, talk to carriers in, in Europe or talk to carriers in the US, you know, this is what they're seeing. And I don't think it's unique to the UK. And it appears to be a trend that that's very sustaining. Yeah, certainly remarkable to watch it uh, playing out and to, to see that, as you said, becomes part of a norm for the future. Uh, what about generationally? I mean, we talk now uh, about the Gen Z travellers. Do you think the, the next uh, set of travellers who are going to be travelling for decades ahead are going to demand different things and behave differently? They're also a lot more tech savvy in terms of how they book and how they find out about places and things to do. I, well, I agree. I think there's probably two or three characteristics about new generations of travellers that we see. And I think it's very exciting. One is you're right about tech savviness. And I think the airline that wins the battle for convenience will win the hearts and minds of um, new generations of travellers. And we're investing hugely in improving, you know, our customer facing technology. And, um, you know, we have a lot of projects in the next two years that will really, I think, move us up to be, um, I think, leading edge in that space. I think secondly, sustainability is going to form a huge part of what everybody, you know, will value in terms of air travel. And I think the credentials around getting aviation to net zero by 2050 and showing credible progress in the next four to five years by 2030 to getting there will be important in maintaining, I think, the commitment of new generations of travelers to, to fly. You know, it's existential for the industry that we win that battle. Because, you know, it's their future that we're fighting for. And, you know, it's heart and center of an awful lot of the decisions they make about how they consume and how they live their lives. Thanks, Sean. Let's let's take a look at a, a, another key element of the, the airline mix today, which is technology. Now, it's not to put too fine a point on it, but British Airways and indeed other airlines have faced recent significant uh, IT challenges. And this really reflects the nature of the business with many, many IT systems, legacy systems, you could call them, which go back decades. And the difficulty to unpick these, replace them. It's not a matter of simply doing a clear out and replacing one system because one affects another. Do you think airlines are going to succeed overall in becoming much more technology focused and adept in running their businesses using technology in the decades ahead? Yes, I think if you look at airlines historically, we were one of the first industries to network and one of the first industries to distribute our product and fares electronically. So, you know, in the analog era, I think airlines were very advanced in terms of technology. And of course, now we're going through a transition to the digital era. You know, that transition sometimes is far from straightforward. And as you're transitioning from old to new tech, you do hit bumps on the road. At British Airways and IAG, you know, we have a very significant investment agenda, both to modernize the architecture that we sit on, but also to invest in the consumer facing applications. And, you know, I'm confident that we will do some very exciting things over the coming years. And, and again, I would reflect maybe 25 years ago, you know, airlines were one of the first to grasp online retailing. I think BA.com was a real, you know, innovator in the uh, the wider distribution space. And I think we will see, you know, 
airlines actually recapture, I think, some of that leading edge um, as they begin to modernize both their applications and their platforms in the future. Coming back to the technicalities of a type of uh, airlines, Sean, I mean, British Airways is described as a, a network airline, meaning you don't fly simply passengers from point to point, A to B. You offer an enormous number of connections, uh, of course, through Heathrow Airport. Uh, you fill up your long-haul aircraft partially by people coming from many other places. Again, we're seeing you know, massive turbulence and change in the structure of the industry coming uh, out of COVID. Do you think that model, that way of working is still going to be valid for British Airways or do you see a, a shift in, in what you do? I guess you did move anyway to far more point-to-point -point during the pandemic when there wasn't the same level of connections. I think the hub model is um, you know, still very, very robust and very valid. And I think there's a couple of things to consider. One is I think hubs are actually very efficient and they're, they're very good for, I think, the economy in which they're based because, you know, British Airways is able to offer, you know, a flight every hour up to Edinburgh, Manchester, not because of the point to point market, but because of the ability to also flow passengers onto our international network. So I think both the scale of direct network that you offer out of London and the frequency by which you have flights available to consumers is very, very enhanced when you're hubbing uh, because you're able to flow traffic, you know, from very various markets to make those flights economically viable. And I think, you know, London is a great gateway for a few reasons. One, it's an English speaking hub, and I think it works very well for US travelers. Two, for the North Atlantic, it's brilliantly positioned geographically. And we had the same opportunity in Dublin. And three, I think the British Airways brand resonates very, very strongly not just with UK travellers, but also with US travellers. And four, we've got a very extensive network behind London, not just into Europe, but also into the Middle East and Africa and into emerging markets in, in Asia. And that gives us, I think, flow year round. You know, when Europe traffic drops in winter, an awful lot of our traffic into places like South Africa and, and South Asia backfills some of the capacity that we do have in the North Atlantic long haul network. And I think, you know, my sense is that I'm not sure what will disrupt that at the minute. Um, we did see expansion in direct services, you know, from some of the new entrants in the business. You know, that will carry on, I expect. But I think market growth will keep pace with that expansion. But also, I think you've got to look at the supply side in terms of aircraft available and the types of aircraft available. And, you know, we have the A321LRs coming along and the XLRs, but they don't have the range maybe of the 757s that you will remember when you would have been planning the networks. Mm -hmm. So I think the ability to have thinner routes served point to point, you know, from region to region spokes has got potential, but I don't think it's very different to what we would have seen in the last 10, 20 or 30 years. Well, you've touched on exactly something I wanted to, to discuss with you there that seems a, a conundrum to me, uh, Sean. Uh, I know prior to the podcast, we, we swapped a, a picture of a, a row of British Airways 747s parked up at Heathrow. And I remember chatting to you before talking about the majesty of that look of those tails with the, the union flag. Recently, we've seen Boeing deliver its last 747. And perhaps for me, and I'm sure for you, one of the biggest shocks during COVID when BA said, right, our 747 fleet is gone. And 30 of these aircraft went almost overnight. They never came back into service. So you've got your A380s back, which uh, is a much smaller fleet, a dozen aircraft. But what we're seeing genu generally is aircraft sizes going down, uh, mm. not specifically leading through to what you were saying about the smaller A321s, but other aircraft like Boeing's 787 family or Airbus A350 are smaller. 
And I wrestle with what is that going to mean in terms of capacity for the future? And will there be a lower ratio of transfer uh, or flow traffic because there won't be space? How are we going to fit all these um, growing demands for travel into current airport infrastructure, for example? I think it's sort of a great dilemma. And, you know, it's a bit of a crystal ball that you need to look through. We do have the 9X coming, obviously, into the industry and, you know, be able to take delivery of that. And that's got the similar seat capacity to the 747. Mm -hmm. You're talking, obviously, a couple of years before that comes and uh, it will take a while to scale. The way I would see it evolving would be you may have situations where you have less transfer traffic on certain flows. But I think actually having, you know, smaller gauge overall may increase the viability of more direct markets being served. So my sense is that hubs will develop more breadth. And they may actually, you know, see less transfer traffic in terms of depth on some of the routes that you would have flown. And that spill then could create opportunities for more point-to-point -point services across ONDs that wouldn't have been viable in the past. So that would be the logical conclusion, really. I think in terms of airport expansion, you know, there's two criteria that airports have to consider when they expand. One is affordability. And uh, we were very clear on things like the third runway that... The worst of all words would have been to build a lot more capacity, but have a massive hike in airport charges because, you know, your economics would make that hub very uncompetitive. And we already sit on a hub, which is much more expensive than its European peers. But secondly, I do think that the net zero credentials will have to be front center of airport expansion in the future. And the environmental hurdles will be a bigger feature of, you know, planning permissions uh, when they're sought than they would have been maybe 10 or 20 years ago. So, uh, you know, I do think that um, that's going to be the nature of um, the way airport expansion is assessed in the future and whether that slows the, the available capacity in the system or not is, is a question we're going to have to fi figure out. Mm -hmm. And another element, uh, Sean, you touched on it in your, your opening comments about consolidation taking place in the industry. And we, we look at uh, the European landscape in which we're, we're both uh, based. We heard from Michael O'Leary recently always is, is a, a good a source of a quick, succinct uh, expression of what might happen. I think he said Europe's going to end up with more or less three airline, four airline groups, rather three of the network groups, IAG, your, your parent, Air France, KLM, Lufthansa and Ryanair and nobody else. Everybody else is going to be eaten up and that, that's it. Do you think it's going to be as neat and tidy as that in the future or are we going to still have, as you described, more fragmentation still? Look, I think it's interesting. I think there's been, that's been probably the hypothesis for 20 years now. And I would say that the International Airlines Group was set up to participate in that dynamic and did it very successfully, you know, moving from, from being a British Airways Iberia merger to having four airlines and, you know, having a track record of both acquiring and integrating airlines successfully. So I think when the time comes, you know, that's what IAG's mission statement is. At the minute, I think our focus is, you know, transform the businesses, you know, make sure that we're recovering effectively you know, repair the financial performance. And I think that's the bedrock from which, um, you know, the winners will emerge. And of course, John, we have recently seen uh, two airlines, you know, fall into financial distress, uh, which is often a feature of what happens when you do come out of a crisis like the pandemic. Winners and losers emerge. And I think the people who transform and address the structural issues in their business more quickly will be the winners and those that don't, um, you know, will struggle. And, and I do think we will see that play out over the next couple of years. But, you know, it's never straightforward in the aviation industry. It's very different to other industries in that the ability to kind of set up an airline is relatively straightforward. You don't have the barriers to entry, maybe, that you do in other sectors. 
and you know, I think we will see people come in and develop new business models and uh, look to to kind of participate uh, because that's been a feature of of, of the way the industry has developed over the last thirty years. Do you, do you have any feeling about what what kind of business models we might see? Because in some ways, I'm surprised we haven't really seen anything. I suppose radically new coming out of a pandemic. We've had a lot of airlines emerge. Because there's been a plethora of of cheap aircraft available to to buy or lease, and some of those have worked, and some haven't. Some seem to have a good logic to their business models, and others are more questionable. But we already had relatively new business models in the sense of long haul, low cost, which, uh, as as we speak at this point in time, hasn't been terribly easy for anybody to make money out of. Uh, and then we've seen maybe even more niche, ultra long haul flights based far more on premium passengers, but who just don't want to have to stop somewhere. But I can't really think of anything else that I've seen that struck me as radically new. And I don't know about those two particular models, if they're going to make it. Well, I suppose, you know, what's got to be radical is the move towards more sustainable aviation. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, whenever I speak to people, the second or third question I get often, the first is, okay, what about sustainability and what's the industry doing to get to net zero? So I think if you talk to all of the original equipment manufacturers, be it Boeing or Airbus or GE or Rolls, everybody's talking about making, you know, aviation sustainable. So I think, you know, where is the innovation frontier? It's all about sustainability now, because that's so critical to the industry. And I think that's front and center. I think the second thing to consider is, look, what environment are we heading into in the next decade? Because, you know, we have inflation, we have higher interest rates. I think you've also had you know, the leasing companies have had to deal with geopolitical risk in a way that they haven't had to deal with it before. So, you know, is risk appetite going to change? And will the ability to kind of access aircraft and lease aircraft and access financing, you know, which is that low interest rates, change uh, the way, you know, new entrants come in and, and kind of experiment in the way they would have done in the past? So I, I think the future is going to be different from the past in terms of risk appetite, number one. And I think a lot of the you know, ecosystem, which we rely on to kind of propel innovation is going to be focused on sustainability. And uh, they're the, the kind of, that's why the future, I think, will be different or how the future will be different from the past. Now, you and BA are already doing a lot. You know, you're getting more new efficient aircraft coming in. You've got partnerships with, for example, suppliers of sustainable aviation fuels. But we see a lot of work going on with industry players, whether it's in Airbus, Boeing, Rolls-Royce, other engine manufacturers, for example. But what we hear again and again is the kind of flying that we're just talking about now, long-haul aircraft, the 747 previously, the A380 now, even the 777X to come, even 50 years ahead of us, when we're no longer on this planet as individuals, you know, these aircraft supposedly are not going to be able to uh, use new technology such as hydrogen or electric power. Uh, it looks like they, we can make progress on those fronts, possibly at the earliest into the 2030s. Do you think there's any way the industry can accelerate more uh, than it is doing now? Or do you think we just have to accept this is reality and it's going to be down to the alternative fuel, sustainable aviation fuel as the, the vehicle to try to address the challenge i think you know is there any golden key that unlocks the golden door or silver bullet here you know at the minute there's there is not one that we see but you know what you are seeing i think is huge energy a huge amount of capital a huge amount of innovation going on and we know from history that kind of innovation doesn't actually lead to incremental gains sometimes it can lead to more radical breakthroughs but if you look at you know where we are even in the last four years all of a sudden we're talking credibly about hydrogen powered short haul aircraft. 
And recently, we have seen a business that we've invested in, Zero Avia, conduct uh, a hydrogen-powered flight on uh, one of its uh, Dornier concept aircraft. So, you know, that's a lot more progress than people would have anticipated maybe four years ago on the evolution of that technology. I do think flights of 60 to 90 minutes, you know, gauges of up to 150 seats, hydrogen will become um, a very viable technology. And of course, that is, is carbon net zero in terms of emissions. I think if you look at long haul, it is a trickier path to get there. And I think what we're going to have is, is probably a cycle of long haul travel, which can get to net zero, but it won't be as straightforward as putting hydrogen planes in the sky. Um, I think the first thing that we do need, obviously, is, you know, renewable energy. And I think the UK is very well advanced in actually having a high proportion of renewable energy in its ecosystem, but also in terms of projects to accelerate that. And I think the second thing that we would have, of course, is more efficient technology. So although you may not have hydrogen powered aircraft, I think you will see more efficient engine technology. You will see more efficient ways to use batteries and distribute power in flight. But at the minute, the intensity of power you need to lift an aircraft off the ground and fly it to Singapore will require a version of a gas turbine engine. So then how do you make that more sustainable? I think the answer is going to be in the form of sustainable aviation fuels, which have a 80 to 90% reduction in the carbon life cycle footprint that they leave. But also then I think if we can evolve things like Corsia and ETS from not just being offset, but to being a vehicle to invest in carbon removal, you can, I think, get a system in place where aviation and long-haul aviation is net zero by 2050. Um, so, you know, you have different solutions to different parts of the system, but I do think more and more there is a path for long-haul aviation to be sustainable emerging, but it requires a, a connected set of processes to work. And in terms of those connections, Sean, obviously politics comes in again, governments and, and uh, governments are quick to give their views about the industry and, and their contribution in a negative sense that it's making to the environmental challenge, not always so willing to partner the industry in helping it, taking more of a stick than a, a carrot approach. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are about Europe specifically. We, we Number one, we don't have enough of this sustainable aviation fuel uh, being produced at the moment and what is produced is is pretty expensive we've seen the us uh, taking measures to uh, incentivize production which have been uh, applauded by the industry europe has talked about targets uh, so does it need to do more there and then we see europe maybe out of kilter with other parts of the world aviation is very integrated uh, into the um, strategies of governments, the economic thinking of places like the Middle East uh, and Asia, whereas here we're, we're holding back. I mean, how does how does all this uh, play out in a in a, a future environment, Sean? I think what the US has done very effectively is, is got the economics right. So it's got both federal, you know, per gallon, I think, subsidies, which are incentivizing production, and it's got state-based incentives. And they've gone from you know, not really being at the forefront of sustainable aviation fuel development four or five years ago to, to leading it. And, and I think, you know, it's important in the US, like the Inflation Reduction Act has been quite significant in accelerating that momentum. And I think the US view this as being not just about sustainability, but actually being about an opportunity for the US to lead an industry, which they view as being, you know, very important in the future. So it's a strategic play for both energy independence leadership as well as actually accelerating sustainability and i think it's it's, it's got a lot of foresight in, in in its policy europe is beginning to shift gear uh, and we are seeing some plants emerge in europe 
I think the UK needs to shift gear. You know, we need to get some seed capital into the building of sustainable aviation fuel plants. We do take SAF as a byproduct from some facilities in the UK, like Philip 66 up in Humberside, but we want to build a plant and we want to see the UK build 14 by 2030. You know, that will do a number of things. One, it will regenerate areas that need that regeneration because it won't be in London. It will be in more and more parts of the UK and it can be on sites where we used to have refineries. And secondly, you know, I think it'll be very important that we have SAF production in the UK for, you know, an aviation network that's one of the third biggest in the world. But also I think policy is important because, you know, we need global SAF production and we need recognition globally that wherever you secure or uptake SAF that you get the credit for it uh, when it comes to, you know, the treatment of your emissions so that we don't get competitive distortions. And that's why, you know, what IKEA do, what Corsia does, and, you know, the global coordination of the industry is so critical. And, you know, the industry is good at coordinating globally. We were the first ever sector to self-regulate in terms of emissions in the form of Corsia. Corsia is a global framework to cap and reduce emissions that the industry has agreed to. And, you know, it will lead to a commitment to ceiling of emissions and a process by which we we trade um, emissions credits then to offset and you know it's been developed i think as far back as 2011 it's been adopted as a framework now going forward with a baseline of emissions which has been established and it's a very important first step in having the aviation industry sign up to self-regulation and you know it's been a long road to get there but um, it's a critical piece of infrastructure that we can build on in the future. And in terms of the the, the challenge of uh, chicken and egg with aviation's role as an economic enabler, and we look at some European governments, we've seen recently the Dutch government wanting to put a cap on capacity at Amsterdam Schiphol Airport at a level lower than it was before COVID. We've had a French government uh, saying as a, a quid pro quo for Air France, getting state aid that they cannot fly on certain domestic routes. As I mentioned, that's completely different to what we would see in somewhere like the UAE or in parts of Asia or the enormous growth in China. Do we need to try to get the politicians to understand there needs to be a twin track approach in Europe to, to foster the benefits of aviation and work with the industry rather than beating it up about uh, the challenges? Yeah, well, I think, you know, you might take some local measures, but it doesn't deal with the problem because mm-hmm. I think what you will do is move traffic elsewhere. So I, I suspect that the cut that you see, see at Schiphol will actually see, you know, traffic that would have been flowing over Amsterdam flow over other hubs. And there, there is plenty of available capacity, I think, to recapture that share. So it doesn't necessarily deal, I think, at either a European level or a global level uh, with, uh, you know, the issue that it's intended to deal with. And I go back to, you know, why do we need a global framework? I think if we have an aviation industry that on a coordinated global level is committed to one cap emissions, you know, at a baseline and two to both develop technologies, carbon removals, sustainable aviation fuel pipelines that will get it to net zero by 2050, you know, get your policy behind accelerating those kind of levers that we do have rather than putting clumsy regulation in. That would be my, my ask to regulators uh, and to think globally about this because um, I, I think what, what happens in Amsterdam, you know, will move the problem elsewhere rather than fix the problem. 
No, we're very much a global industry. It's it's only uh, logical to to take that approach. Sean, just in terms of uh, rounding off on on some topics, you touched on political and geopolitical risk uh, earlier on with regard to lessors, for example. We we currently, as we uh, speak, still have the uh, the Ukraine war playing out. We discussed how BA and every airline had to go through the shock that never could have been predicted of uh, COVID. Uh, you've had to adjust to the consequences of Brexit, as well as another example. Uh, what are your thoughts about any new kind of political or geopolitical risks we might face in the future? Is that something you've sat as a board and reflected on? We can never predict everything, but has it made you go deeper in trying to work this out? I think um, we've been in a period of incredible volatility, I suppose, and maybe you know we've got to adapt and say, look, what do you need to do with your business? When do you need to be flexible? I think one of the things that you spoke about early was financial resilience, and that comes in a few forms. One is your balance sheet, and I think it's important that airlines, you know, generate profit again to restore their balance sheets, and that's front of mind, obviously, as a key, you know, KPI for British Airways and for IAG. Secondly, is is what can you do to make your business more flexible by variableizing your cost base? Because I think what we learned is when airlines have to shut down, as they did in, the, in COVID you know, you're generally very heavily geared and ways you can make your cost base more variable is very, very important. Thirdly, is just to make sure that you have flexibility to move in and out of markets quickly um, in terms of your business processes. But apart from that, really, I think, you know, having a crystal ball to figure, you know, what the geopolitical landscape will bring in the future, you can spend a lot of time doing it, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be right because I don't think anybody could have predicted four years ago what would happen either geopolitically or in terms of the pandemic. We're back flying into China, we're back in, or sorry, back into Hong Kong and we're back flying into Haneda. Uh, we're rerouting obviously our flights and, and using, I think some of the options we have in our fleet to do that in the form of our 787-9s. So we've been able to reestablish our network there, you know, and work around the, the fact that we're not able to overfly Russia at the minute. So there's one thing I do know about the industry. It's very well able to adapt to whatever, you know, is thrown at it. And um, we'll continue to do that. I mean, it really is remarkable, isn't it? As you said, we talked about the technology of these aircraft, but the adaptation that has to happen all the time. And it's, it's not an industry for an easy life by, by any means. No, it's not. It's, it's, um, it attracts um, some great people who are nothing if not resilient. And um, I'm very proud of the resilience of the people in British Airways. Considering what we've been through uh, and the way we've handled it, you know, it forges um, a real strong, resilient kind of capability in the business that we can galvanize around. And as you said, uh, you know, it, it is about people. It's a people business, not just in a technical sense of all the functions and the key contributions they make, but in the interface with customers, it's got to be about a, a good experience. And I guess the challenge you and other leaders will face, given the... the, the uh, the uncertain world that we're in and will be in for the future is keeping those hearts and minds of people on board, especially when when you have to uh, uh, up and change your spots far more frequently. Yeah, I think, you know, when you run any business, you've got three key stakeholders that you've always got to kind of, I think, keep in the right balance. One, of course, is uh, your financial stakeholders, the people who invest in your business so that you run it well. And we should never lose sight of the fact that um, they take the risk in, in British Airways and in IAG and uh, we're stewarding, I think, their investment. Secondly, is your customers. You don't have a business without your customers. And third is your colleagues uh, who, who run the business and make it happen. And I think if you can get the, 
the balance right between those three dimensions in a business you've got that chemistry that that you know one makes it successful and two allows it to grow in the future uh, and i think our colleagues are key uh, i've put it at the heart of our strategy we've got to be honest with the kind of challenges that we do face so i think you know communication is absolutely critical also priority you know getting the operation back making sure we're more resilient uh, you know, making sure that everybody in the company understands the role they can play in making a difference is very much the way I want to run British Airways. And it's very much, you know, what we have been doing in terms of communication and engagement over the last couple of years. Uh, because I think if we're not all kicking in the same direction, we won't get it right for our customers. And if we don't get it right for our customers, well, then you won't get it right for your other stakeholder. Sean, you've talked understandably about the importance of people in the business, and we've seen the challenges for airlines coming out of COVID, having lost people, trying to get them back, trying to recruit new people. We hear about people taking jobs elsewhere, even driving supermarket delivery trucks because it's less pain and just as well paid as working for an airline. You and I chose to come into this business. We're, we're, we're somewhat aviation uh, aficionados. Is it an industry, though, which is still exciting and that can offer a, a variety of careers for future uh, generations? I, I think it is. And, you know, we've had a lot of applications. You know, we've had about 130,000 people apply for jobs in British Airways over the last 12 months. I think the challenges, you know, we faced last year were probably a couple of things at play. One is... You know, the referencing processes to get people into aviation are significant. You need to do five years of background checks. And, you know, before people get passes to work airside, there's quite a high threshold and that takes time. So, you know, that was an issue that we all had to grapple with last year. Secondly, the UK labour market generally, as other labour markets, was tight. But I think we've been very impressed with the number of people who want to work with us. And, um, you know, it says two things. One is, what we do is very exciting because, you know, everybody wants to talk about their experience on an airline. Everybody wants to see the world and travel. And I think there is an excitement about the, the purpose we have in aviation, which I think is unique, which is why I've stayed in it 25 years. I think secondly, though, we need to look to the future and realize that to attract talent into the industry, you know, what we do in terms of sustainable aviation is going to be a very, very important part of our employer brand. And more and more younger generations will look at our credentials in terms of sustainability. And that will be a very important factor in deciding whether they want to work with British Airways and in the industry. Well, Sean, it's been great to run through a whole host of issues uh, that this industry faces that you have to lead uh, British Airways in adapting to and, and delivering for the future and for all those different uh, stakeholders that you mentioned. Sean Doyle, BA CEO, thank you very much. John, thank you. Thanks to you for listening, and I hope we've provided some valuable insight into how British Airways sees the future. From me, John Strickland, goodbye. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast series are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of American International Group, Inc., or its subsidiaries or affiliates, AIG. Any content provided by our speakers are of their opinion and are not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, individual, or anyone or anything. AIG makes no representations as to accuracy, completeness, correctness, or validity of any information provided during this podcast series, and will not be liable for any errors, omissions, or delays in this information, or any losses, injuries, or damages arising from its use.